everybody. This is the Busted Business Bureau. I'm Christian Borky. This podcast is produced by the Lincoln Lodge in Chicago, Illinois. If you like the podcast, perhaps consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com slash bustedbizbureau. Otherwise, please keep rating and leaving reviews. It really helps me out on the business end of things for the algorithm. You get it. Today, I have a returning guest of the podcast, a dear friend. Her episode is one of the most popular in the podcast. It is Danica and her roommate, Nick. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> hey guys, how you doing this morning? I'm I'm good. I know that you record the, it on video now, but just in case someone is just listening mm-hmm. um, and can't see us, I just want everyone to know how good Nick looks right now. Thank you. Nick is wearing full Oakland Athletics regalia. Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, dress up for the occasion. I don't get to wear this very often, so. Do you not? No, I don't. It's kind of flashy, so I don't really like to wear it out. <laughs> but. uh They've also, Danica is in socks garb, and you two have bestowed upon me a Biscuits jersey. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about the Biscuits? Yeah, so the, the Montgomery Biscuits are a team from... <laughs> am, I, am I being too loud? Or? No, you're just okay. funny. It's the Montgomery Biscuits. You're Mon- so matter of fact. Montgomery Biscuits are a team from Montgomery, Alabama. They're a double-A team for the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, that means they're just a minor league team where, like, the younger guys go. Mm-hmm. People who are less good at baseball than, like, people who are on the Rays. Okay, they go so. there and develop and get better, and then they eventually make it to the majors or they don't. A name like the Montgomery Biscuits is unstoppable. Yeah. I feel very powerful in this jersey right now. Yeah, their mascot is a, a little biscuit with a uh, tongue that's butter. Oh, yeah, it's on your jersey. <laughs> it's on the jersey. Right Holy there. shit, it's you're the, kidding. It's on the sleeve, yeah. Oh, my God, that's goofy. What do you think his name is? Uh, Braxby. It's Monty. <laughs> he's, he's from Montgomery. Uh-huh. Mont- Monty the Biscuit. He's so cute. Yeah, he's got little fun eyes and little hands. Now, it's fun to be an adult and wearing this as your uniform. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, trying to be like a you know professional baseball Imagine player. Imagine how the guy in the biscuit suit feels. <laughs> That's all I think about is the guy in the biscuit suit. I used to work as the guy, not in the biscuit suit, but like as a mascot around a sports park. It was terrible. Which <laughs> it was what, like a regional sports up? park. I was I had to dress up like a cardinal, and for some reason I had to push Chick Fil A sandwiches, which was unreal. I didn't work for Chick Fil A; I worked for the sports park. But <laughs> <laughs> that was like my main goal. I had to like carry out a Chick Fil A sign. Anyways. <clears throat> This mini group of episodes. Oh, this is like the first episode of season four, by the way. So you guys are on another debut. Danica was on the debut of season two. And so this is life's a circle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is the debut of season four. And it's going to start off this season with a mini group of episodes. This one's the MLB. The next one's going to be the NFL and then the NHL. And this is sort of a fool's errand to understand sports because my brothers all really like sports. All the men in my life really like sports. And I hardly fucking understand a lick of it. Did you say you were doing one about the NBA or no? I could. Because there's, I mean, I, I only have one thing to say about that. And then let me hear it. It's funny because like Obama, Barack Obama, <laughs> you, like kind of union busted at the NBA. Oh, yeah. He didn't, didn't, didn't kind of. He did. He did. <laughs> like, I just, I don't know why he, I don't know why it worked. Mm. Like if someone, if Barack Obama called me and said, don't do this, I'd be like, um, who are you? My dad. <laughs> Well, I'm glad to know that you are immune <laughs> to the call of Barack Obama, but many others yeah, apparently are no such. I'd probably do whatever he asks. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, you know what? Perhaps that'll be episode four. I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm flying by the seat of my pants most of the time on this podcast. This is astounding that I'm here. I went to bed at 4 a.m., woke up at 9, picked you two up for brunch, and now we're here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Full of potatoes. Full of potatoes and a little bit of a Bloody Maria, he said. Mm-hmm. 
because it's a mezcal Bloody Mary. That guy was so pleasant. Oh, he really made my We went to Dove's Luncheonette, by the way, in Logan, which is fucking awesome. Anyways, despite the massive gorilla grip that professional sports have on our culture and daily lives, I know very little about the. Thank you for laughing at something I wrote in the script. I know very little about the business end of it. Even the MLB, which I've spent you know the whole episode trying to research and understand, it's still an eleven billion dollar industry that I am not prepared to field every single question about. You two seem to know a lot more about it than I do. Am I correct? I like to think I know a lot about it, but I, I might not. Maybe you don't. Yeah. No. I, I spend a lot of time playing a game on my computer where it's basically just looking at spreadsheets and being like, it's a simulated baseball game. For real? But it's just about the numbers. It's I don't get to play. Like, I don't swing the bat. <laughs> I just be like, um, that guy looks good. And then I offer him a contract. And yeah, what? so I, I spend time doing that. What is the game called? It's called Out of the Park Baseball. <laughs> It's it's wonderful. It's great. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. That's such like an adult game. Like when you're a kid, you think about what adults play. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a they... spreadsheet game with numbers <laughs> and yeah. And chance. It's like the roll of a dice. I love mm-hmm. that. Yeah, exactly. It's I, fun. I generally know a little bit, and it's just because that I kind of uh, dated someone who had a minor league contract, and I oh. read it, and it's and I was like, oh, this is indentured servitude. Yeah. Oh, we're going to be talking about that. Believe you me. I just, like, grew up in a baseball family, and that's, like, basically... I I know, like, the rules of baseball. I played softball when I was in high school. In fact, in one of my most Zac Efron moments, I was, like, in the play and in softball at the same time, and this girl was like, you better stop playing dyke ball if you want to get, like, a better part in the play. (laughs) She was a senior, and I was a freshman, too, and I just, like, laughed because I thought it was funny that she was so, like, cliche movie girl. Anyway, that's my connection to the MLB is I played dyke ball in high school. They don't offer scholarships for that anymore. They don't. I know. <laughs> this is the future liberals want. <laughs> so we're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry here, but I don't know what franchise owners do. I don't know why we get frequent and seasonally devastating lockouts. Like I, The state of labor relations in the MLB is what I was mostly looking at when I was trying to do the history of this episode and try and piece together why we have the thing that we have today. So that's the journey that I plan on taking you two on. However, I do want to start with sort of a Chekhov's gun situation here. Like I want to introduce something in Act 1 to bring back at a later point. Do you, know, do you two know who Bernie Madoff is? I, I mean, do, yes. I assume you do. Do you know who Bernie Madoff is? No. Really? Not even a little bit? Is this the person you you asked me to pretend not to know? No, it's not. (laughs) Oh, okay, then yeah. Um, You do know who Bernie Madoff is? Yes. Okay, yeah. For those uninitiated, he's the executor of, like, one of the largest Ponzi schemes in history. He was the chairman of NASDAQ in the 90s. And put simply, he promised to take people's money from, like, old ladies' retirement to uh, people's, like, stock portfolios, whatever, and invest it. Then... When they take out the money, there'll be more than they started because he's supposed to be such a savvy investor. And to put it like grossly over simply, to just explain what a Ponzi scheme is, it's as if he had it all in one bank account and just like gave uh, people taking out their money money that new people gave in. You know, that's like how mm-hmm. a Ponzi scheme works. That's essentially what it was. He was worth like $66 billion, and it was this huge thing in 2008 that he went down. He went down like with the economic recession under Obama. Obama called him. <laughs> Obama called him and said, 
You gotta get. You gotta shut this down, man. (laughs) (laughs) So again, with that setup, I will not be telling you where this appears in the story, but I just wanted to put that out there. That this is. It's a Chekhov's gun. What can I say? I do theater. (laughs) I don't do baseball. Anyways, back to the MLB. The thing that stuck out most to me when trying to think of the MLB is that every single major league sport in the U.S. falls under the or like is governed by, uh, uh, regulated with the Sherman Antitrust Act, but the MLB is the only one, to my knowledge, that has a bunch of exemptions to the Antitrust Act, which is uh, a sleigh. They were, so they had a almost full antitrust exemption until like 98. Yeah. Like for 75 years they Mm -hmm. had it. And uh, the initial reasoning for it is so stupid. And we're going to talk about it. Okay, you have it later? I hope so. Yeah, that's like the best. Going all the way back to like 1922 yeah, or whatever, yeah, like federal the, the, baseball. Uh, yeah, it's so yeah. unbelievably dumb. <laughs> I'm so glad you know about this. Oh, this is a huge thing. I told you I wrote a whole paper on this. It's in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. So, yeah, the MLB is the only major league sport that has a number of antitrust exemptions. This was decided in 1922 and has never really been fully fixed, obviously. Um, we don't or at least the decision in 1922 did not count baseball as interstate commerce. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> it's, it's, redi- it's insane. Fucking it's, awesome. It's, and like put into today, like calling a baseball game not interstate commerce is ridiculous. <laughs> it's like literally two teams from different states are playing each other. <laughs> it's, it's insane. They're broadcast ab- across, uh, dare I say, all the states. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sports player, like, it doesn't make sense at all. And I, I didn't learn this until recently. Baseball players have to file taxes in every state yes. that they've ever played in. Yes. They're, it's called the jock tax. Yeah. I think. They're, uh, yeah, paychecks come from, they get filed in the state that they play mm-hmm. their games in. They get game checks. So that, and Florida and, like, Texas are heavy free agent destinations because they don't have to pay taxes on half their games. Yeah. So it's like a, a reason why people go play in Florida. Isn't that fucking crazy, though? What an what inefficient way to do this, again, like $11 billion industry sport or whatever. Mm-hmm. So back before, let's talk about why this antitrust thing is in place. Before the MLB, there was this dis- group of disparate professional baseball leagues, to put it simply. And to make a long motherfucking story short, I guess a bunch of clubs in different leagues had consolidated around 1922. Is this sounding right? Because I only have like a girl's understanding of... <laughs> <laughs> a young girl's understanding of what the MLB is. So a bunch of teams had consolidated, and I believe what I'm going to say is slightly inaccurate, but this is the only way I was able to understand it. Like, let's say there's two different leagues that are out of St. Louis. The one league had paid off the other St. Louis team so that there could only be, like, one baseball team in St. Louis. And quite simply, there were no such things in place for the Baltimore Terrapins, a team that does not still exist. And so the Baltimore Terrapins were like, well, the league is just gone now, and we... Like, we were professional baseball players. Now there's no league and everyone had consolidated without us. I think that might be, like, a trust of sorts, dare I say. And so they sued what was – it's not the MLB at this point, but what is the nascent – yeah, go for yeah, it. I, it was – the Federation League was the one there that got is. consumed. Yes. Like, almost entirely. And then there was one owner who was like, that's not right. That shouldn't happen. So he was the one that sued. I think at the time it was MLB. It was MLB. Yeah. I, th- I think so. I thought it was the AL and the NL still at that point. Yeah, it was. was it was the before they. League? It was before they became MLB. Yeah, yeah. 
But in the Baltimore Terrapins lawsuit, initially his lawsuit is a success, right? And they're like, yeah, you know what? This does violate antitrust things that we have in place. Then in appeals, they were like, actually, just kidding. Fuck you, Baltimore Terrapins. Then it winds up at the desk of the Supreme Court where they are to litigate if this, if the, again, it's the nascent MLB. It's not called the MLB, but like it's the groups that will become the MLB. Um, Like the American League and National League are still around and that's what makes up MLB today. Um, Just People might not know what antitrust laws are. I had that in here, um, but I didn't want to be condescending. But <laughs> just because it's a little Please. bit confusing, and it's not like a like some laws have names where you're like, oh, I know what that is. But it's just like to stop companies from colluding to keep, like, for example, prices down, that sort of thing. Yeah. Or like colluding on prices. Um, to like it's to prevent monopolies. So yes. like preventing one major league baseball um, <laughs> from sort of stopping any other professional leagues from popping up. Which, we did a great job doing that. Yeah. Famously, there's a rich and wide diversity of baseball leagues that one could play in professionally that are not under the MLB. Yeah. We did an awesome job <laughs> regulating that. And generally, I know it's been like a, a point of clowning on this podcast before of how just like a, a joke antitrust stuff in the United States is. Um, but yes, uh, I always think of when I think of like antitrust, I always think like anti-monopoly. That's like the word mm-hmm. that more makes me understand what is going on here. But thank you. I literally had that in here. And then I was like, you know what? It might be condescending to explain what a trust <laughs> is. So I'm going to put that away. Well, you're just on my same fucking wavelength. <laughs> all right. Anyways, in this, so we wind up all the way at the Supreme Court for this Baltimore Terrapins lawsuit. And the initial, oh, I'm sorry, I just said all of that. But and the Supreme Court is like, we agree with appeals, basically. Professional baseball, as it stands, is not a monopoly. It's not interstate commerce and therefore should not be federally regulated. And the guy who was the author of this decision is Justice, I think it's Oliver Orville Holmes, who is a, quote, bookish, unathletic child who had likely never seen a game of baseball in his life. <laughs> that's, that's tough. <laughs> he doesn't even know what baseball is. And he's like, I know it's probably not commerce. <laughs> He's like, it's a game? <laughs> he likely never How's even a heard a radio broadcast of baseball. Like, he's older than that. <laughs> so the guy doesn't like baseball, doesn't care about baseball. Um, <laughs> this is also I found out that um, President William Taft was on the Supreme Court. I didn't know that, that he did both those things in his lifetime, and he was like the... The, the big guy on the Supreme Court yeah. at the time. The major <laughs> he guy. He was a big guy. He was a big guy. <laughs> so he, like, retired and then became president? No, he did a president first and then Supreme Court. What? Oh, right? I thought he died in the bathtub. He got... What are you doing? Mandela effect. <laughs> Mandela effect, I thought Taft died in the bathtub. You, he got thought we, you thought we had a president that died getting stuck in the bathtub? Because I never, okay, because I never heard how they got him out of there. Just so probably I thought he butter. stayed in. <laughs> they buttered up our yeah. big, huge, we're due for a big, huge president. JB. JB. J. Bob Pritzker. Is that his name? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's what JB stands for. That's a sweet name. J-Bob. Why does he go by J-Bob more? Anyways, yeah. I, it, it makes you wonder if Justice Holmes would have imagined the state of the MLB today. Certainly not when he was authoring, authoring that opinion. Anyways, there's been a few unsuccessful lawsuits uh, since then to challenge federal baseball. That's like the 
the title of the fucking whatever it doesn't matter mm-hmm. legally though as it stands today this precedent remains unchallenged for like a fucking century it is laughable thinking that baseball is not interstate commerce especially considering that we classify every other major league sport as such I guess I repeated myself a lot when I wrote this a lot of this was written at 2am today <laughs> 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 like I got home from work and I was like oh fuck I gotta finish this so these antitrust exemptions are the golden goose for the MLB this lawsuit enshrined a series of like labor rights bullshit that would remain for decades after that and one such piece of bullshit is the reserve clause. Are you familiar with that? Of course. Can you tell me a little bit about the reserve clause? So the reserve clause was up, it was in baseball up until 72? It was challenged in 72, which okay. we'll talk about, but it was gotcha. like done 70, under. 76. Yeah. Oh yeah, because, okay, it was yeah. Messersmith and then we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, and basically it allowed teams to auto-renew contracts uh, every single year. So, <laughs> like, if you had a guy on your team who you were paying $50,000 to play, you could just say, we're going to do that again, and you're stuck on our team. So it made sure that players were stuck on their teams their entire careers, unless the teams decided they didn't want them. So, like, so teams if- would just be like, oh, we're done with you, and then that person would enter, like, a, a form of free agency, but different from it is today. Yeah. Like, there was not a big free agency market. Kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And back in the early, early days of baseball, like 1876, this is predating the reserve clause, owners and players had operated under what is more or less a freer system wherein players would actually shop around for contracts um, from different clubs and accept the contract with the highest number of zeros on it, whatever. The owners were not making much money in this 1876 era of baseball, and so they had decided, they, I guess colluded, to come up with this reserve clause. By 1879, there's this system in place where basically, like you said, it's... It auto-renews the contract year after year, which I've tried to understand, like, how or why that's, like, a thing you can do, and which is also a fool's errand. But um, initially, it was that they were allowed to reserve five players on their roster per year, so they stake their claim on, like, five players, and all the other owners respected that, and were not allowed to offer contracts to these five players. Every other player was allowed to shop around except for those five. Again, this is, like, the early, early reserve clause. Once the five players' contracts were negotiated, confirmed or denied, then they were free to shop around. But there's an additional caveat added on top of that. And this part I'm helped by um, this book called Pay Dirt, The Business of Professional Team Sports by James Cork and Rodney D. Fort. Great read. I found it on Scribdy. So the clause states that it is further understood and agreed that the party of the first part of the team shall have the right to reserve the said party of the second part. It's just like fucking snooze fest. Yeah. The interpretation placed on this clause by owners was part of a perpetual option of the player's services for his playing lifetime in the sport. And this was backed up by the agreement of other owners to not hire the players who are on the reserve list of other teams. Can I, I feel like people think about athletes differently from other, like, workers. Let's and so, talk about it. Because, like, imagine, imagine, Christian, you work at the Lincoln Lodge. Imagine every year they're like, you can't. You are not allowed to go anywhere else. You are legally bound. You signed a contract saying you have to work here. And you're going to make the same amount of money every (laughs) single year. Or Imagine the Lincoln Lodge goes, hey, uh, actually, we're just going to trade you to the owl. (laughs) Um, 
we kind of we like their young guys over there. We're going to trade you for one of the young guys. We know you're veteran talent. You've done a lot for this team, but we're going to send you over there. So have a good uh, have a good time. They like also, they could just do that. They also have the option to cut your salary by up to twenty percent if like you just were kind of a bitch about it. Yeah. <laughs> if you're like I don't think I want to keep working at the lodge, they'd be like, well, that's too bad. It's crazy. Enjoy eighty so. percent of what you made last year because that's all you're getting this year. <laughs> If I got traded to the yeah, owl, I would flee the country. <laughs> <laughs> like they got a, they got a lot of young prospects. Okay, <laughs> up and coming young guys. I went to the owl once on a Monday night at two a.m. <laughs> That's the best time to go. <laughs> it was actually kind of empty. I was pleasantly is, surprised yeah. at how empty it was. I was there. Have you seen that Twitter account that's like... I was in oh, the photo booth. I, I, I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. There's a Twitter about. account of somebody who lives right next to the owl recording fights outside the owl. <laughs> oh, yeah, I have seen that. <laughs> God, I love this fucking city. <laughs> so what emerges from this is that players are bound in perpetuity to their original owner that they sign on until the owner decides to trade them. If that sounds fishy, it's because it is. It's because we don't think of professional athletes the same way that we think of everybody else. Which, I want a sidebar... A lot of people have this conception that pro athletes are paid too much money. Yeah. I want to hear your thoughts on this. No. Uh, no, they're not paid too much. Too much money. Yeah. Uh, there's like the millionaires versus billionaires debate when it oh. comes to like labor relations. But in like a Marxist sense, technically, the players are still underpaid. Like they are they are the means of Yeah, production. the amount of wealth they create for yeah. other people. <laughs> is, is still disproportionate. Like. Uh, yeah, they they don't get paid enough, and it's weird to say for you know guys like Bryce Harper or Mike Trout who are making almost half a billion dollars over their careers that mm-hmm. they're not technically being paid enough for their labor, but it's true. Yeah, they do create a lot of wealth for the, the owners, and then they also like have to kind of give up a lot for their jobs too. That I think a lot of people don't think about, like the fact that you can just one day walk into the locker room and then ha- like be told you're being sent down to mm. the minor leagues you have to move like you like oh i just bought a house here like my I, my kids just like got put in school here like they have families that all of a sudden just have to like uproot their entire lives like and move mm-hmm. uh, even if they've been in a place for a really long time also they spent like it's it's like n- six months of like just work you don't really have days off and you spend most of the days working whether mm-hmm. you're at practice or working out like all those things count as like work, work. that you're doing <laughs> I agree. I agree a thousand percent. And that's, I always have wondered why we don't have that popular idea that they're not, like, why everyone is just like, oh, pro athletes make too much money. And I wonder if it's like uh, people assume that since they are celebrities or they, like, enjoy the benefits of fame or popularity or whatever, that, like... (laughs) <laughs> we don't have to compensate them more, but I'm glad that you two were immediately on the train of, like, they're not paid enough, because that was also my gut reaction, and I was like, I have to be wrong, because everyone says they're overpaid, so, like, yeah. surely I'm and, missing something. I mean, people look at the fringe cases of, like, you know, Bryce Harper mm-hmm. and Mike Trout and Machado making $300 million, but it's really, you know, the guys on the bottom who are making less money, and it's not even, like, it's like a lifetime career. Mm-hmm. Like baseball, there, it's an is, average of like four years, right? Yeah, it's a very low average. And if you're good, you're there for twelve. Mm-hmm. Like if you're really good, you're there for twelve years. And you're not going to make like a a low low level player is not going to make like generational wealth from a twelve year baseball career. Mm-hmm. Which is why most of them go into real estate afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Or podcasts. Like, yeah, or podcasts. <laughs> Do they for real? Oh, <laughs> that a joke. There's so many podcasts. Just old, <laughs> old baseball guys. 
Yeah. No, there was a ton of, there was a few real estate agents in my hometown that were like old For baseball players. For real? Yeah. yeah. That is hysterical. Yeah. Where's your hometown? San Ramon, California. Slay. It's beautiful this time of year. <laughs> Buy a house there. <laughs> uh, well. Good luck. <laughs> good luck, yeah. The housing market's going. <laughs> Can we just talk about the housing market? It's time to sidebar for the housing market. (laughs) Um, But yes, uh, Quirk and Fort's analysis of the reserve clause, which I've written in here for whatever reason, is, quote, whatever an outside observer might think about the economic implications of the reserve clause or its equity, still, from a professional point of view, it's hard not to marvel at the subtle, convoluted, and diabolical legal mind that put this beauty together. <laughs> Which is a fucking awesome sentence. I want to diabolical mind. <laughs> I was like, that, "Them's fighting words." Uh, but I want to talk about why we no longer have the reserve clause. Sort of the uh, s- series of events that took place that have undone it, and that is mostly precipitated by a guy called Kurt Flood. Familiar? Of course. Familiar? Of course. I love that. So with the groundwork laid that the players in the MLB are operating under the reserve clause, it's time to talk about this guy, Kurt Flood. And I'm helped in this section in massive part because of Brad Snyder's book, A Well-Paid Slave, Kurt Flood's Fight for Free Agency in Professional Sports, which I have with me right here. I got it on thriftbooks.com because it didn't have it at my library, so I had to get it Have you finished it yet? Yeah. Do you want it? Kind of want to borrow it, yeah. Of course. This is so crazy. I'm talking about an episode that hasn't come out yet, but Christian said the same thing. I brought a hockey book, and he was like, can I have it? I said, yeah. Anyways, before we dive into the contents of the book and Flood's uh, life and battle, I want to talk about the acknowledgement section of the book. Brad (laughs) Snyder opens it with, quote, Some people thought I was crazy when I quit my job practicing law at a prominent Washington, D.C. firm to write this book. I had no book deal and no agent. A lawyer advised me that I'd be labeled a dilettante. My friends teased me that I needed to get a real job. Maybe they were both right, but I never regretted my decision to write full-time and to tell the story of Kurt Flood in his lawsuit. Wow. Wait, who's that acknowledging? Himself. The the haters? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, they told me I couldn't do it, but I wrote the book anyways. He kind of starts off by, like, kind of sucking himself off a little. (laughs) He's like, I had such a real, I was, I I had a very prominent job, but I left it. He was an Esquire. He was an Whoa. <laughs> That's crazy that you two read it as sucking himself off. I read that at and the I was very like, just the beginning, and then it took a turn for the worst. <laughs> I read it as like I threw away my life to yeah. write this fucking book, and I had no deal and no agent. Yeah. That's hysterical. Like he was so captivated by Kurt Flood's story that he had to write a book about it, and the book is also full of um, very much first-time author vibes of his little historicisms of being like. This guy wasn't racist towards Kurt Flood. He just didn't like that Kurt Flood was young. And it's like, yeah, we should make a we should make a distinction before we talk about Kurt Flood. Everyone was racist towards Kurt Flood. Everyone was racist towards like, Kurt Flood. Like literally. Period. There's everyone, end of sentence. Everyone except for uh, the king Marvin Miller. But <laughs> oh yeah, Marvin Miller. Literally, like everyone was. Every, the fans, the owners, the managers, everybody. I mean, it wasn't just Kurt Flood. It yeah, was any black player. They were just being racist towards <laughs> Kurt Flood. Yeah, it was every black player, especially in the time he played. Which was like right after, right in the 60s. He, mm-hmm. uh, I think his career started in like 64, some, 62, 64, something like that. Your guess is as good as mine. And uh, it was right in the middle of the civil rights movement. So yeah. he was like the direct recipient of death threats. And I'm sure you're going to talk about it. So I'm Let, <laughs> and let's keep talking about it. This guy, Kurt Flood, to start, he's born in the quote, black section of the Jefferson Davis Hospital in Texas in 1938. Hmm. 
and he grew up in Oakland, California. And uh, this is not Brad's analysis. This is my analysis because I need to explain the quote in the following way. I believe he grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood and therefore ostensibly did not see a lot of segregation because he didn't have other people to be segregated from, which is the only way that I can explain the following quote in which he arrives at a spring training camp in Florida in 1956. So this is in the South. It's going to be a segregated spring training camp. From Snyder's book, quote, Barely a month past his 18th birthday, Flood was waiting for his luggage in a Tampa airport's baggage claim area when he saw two water fountains, one labeled white and the other colored. Quote, For a wild instant, Flood said, I wondered whether the signs meant club soda and Coke. Wow. <laughs> so imagine the Coke water fountain. Yeah. That would be delicious. God, those, those pipes Especially would Especially if they corroded yeah. into oh, shit. But imagine at the airport you're waiting for your bags. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get to just walk over to water. S- sip of Coca-Cola. Oh, refreshing. <laughs> that no. everyone else has had their mouth on. Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's not what the science meant. That is yes. not what the science meant. <laughs> yeah. Very unfortunate. No, yeah. Very unfortunate. That was uh, quite a culture shock. And after a series of, again, like horrific conditions in his segregated spring trainings and a brief baseball-related stint in Venezuela, I think it was also for some sort of training, where he had dysentery for a month. Oh. <laughs> is that the That's the one where you shit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. A lot. A lot of people have died of dysentery. A lot of people still die of dysentery. I died I on. You might have dysentery. dysentery. I I died from dysentery on the Oregon Trail. <laughs> the game. I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> Thank That's, you. I was, just, I was not actually there, guys. <laughs> I. You know what? I, I would have believed you. You said it with such confidence. Love that for you. <laughs> He finally makes it to the MLB, and during his early years in the minors, he had selected the number 42 to honor Jackie Robinson, who was the uh, first black baseball player in the MLB. When he makes it to the majors, he picked the number 21, which is half of Robinson's number. He mentions all the time how much he looks up to Jackie Robinson. Flood spends 12 years on the St. Louis Cardinals and blossoms into his adulthood, both on and off the field. Off the field, he's known as a sensitive bookish type on the team. He listens to classical music, plays piano by ear, reads books, and he paints oil portraits. And I need to stop for a second to talk about his oil portrait business. Business? You don't know anything about this? I don't know anything about this. He got this reputation at MLB as the guy who's going to, like, paint portraits of your kids and paint portraits, like, oil portraits of nice stuff to hang in your house. Like, people thought they were so good. He actually painted a portrait of Martin Luther King Jr. that was in the White House. Um, oh, my God. How, I didn't know this at all. However. <laughs> oh. Are they hideous? No, they're not. Oh, okay. They're quite beautiful. <laughs> okay. Um, like, he, people had to send him, like, a reference photo so he could, like, paint basically what the photo is. Um, he didn't paint any of them. He sent them to a guy in California who just oil painted over the photo. <laughs> he had a fucking fraudulent oil painting business. <laughs> this is the real busted business bureau. Is Kurt Flood's oil painting business? <laughs> what the fuck? That's genius. Is it? And it went in the White House. <laughs> like, oh how god! Did the, how did that story break? I don't, it's in this, unless like, Brad they, Snyder made it up. Like, but, he's got a very uh, broad imagination. imagination <laughs> like, I wonder if the guy who he sent it to, like, told, like, told, Tattled. like, made, like, a little notes app Instagram post. If he saw it on the news one day, he was like, what the hell? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> my shit's he's in like, the White House. that's my Martin Luther King Jr. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa. Is, I, I considered not talking about it, and I was like, no, I got to talk about this fraudulent oil painting business. That's crazy. So that is, right. Well, it goes to show you, uh, he wasn't getting paid enough. 
Period. He, was making, he had to make more money on the side. He had several businesses. Like, this guy. And he was one of the highest paid players, like, in the league. On the field, Flood had climbed his way towards the top of the salary bond in baseball. I say salary bond like that was a thing. He was just, like, at the top of dudes making money. An exceptional center fielder year over year, Flood's salary was $90,000 in 1969. Many had speculated that he'd become the first guy to break 100 k in baseball, which is huge for anyone, let alone a black player who's, you know, coming right off the tailbone of... Tailbone? Why did I say that? Cuffs. Right off the tail. <laughs> right the tail. <laughs> the of, of only, like, it's not that long after Jackie Robinson had first even, like, broken the barrier in the MLB in the first place. So, that is pretty crazy exceptional stuff. But Flood then gets a phone call from a sports writer, no less, that he's going to be traded to the Philadelphia Phillies for the 1970s season. Devastating. He had spent, you know, the 12 years in St. Louis, built his mm-hmm. life there, had several businesses, had five kids, a wife, a house, friends, Seven roots. really solid businesses. <laughs> he also, <laughs> um, this is not relevant to the telling of the story, but his bestie is a white woman 30 years his senior, and everyone is like, why are you two friends? <laughs> He's just like, we vibe. I don't know what to tell you. That's beautiful. I, as someone who, like, has unlikely friendships like that, I'm like, I get it. <laughs> That's wow, really funny. way more interesting than I knew about. Really? Just looking at the, you know, like labor part. Yeah. That's crazy. And, and she is actually one of the people who's like, you should um, do the events that will, are going to happen after this. She's oh, like yeah. a very key instigator in the situation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I really get uh, having a friend who's like 30 years your senior. <laughs> <laughs> they were also roommates. It was him, his brother, and her. <laughs> Where does wife live? Oh, I don't, I don't know if they were. Oh, that, that was point. okay. That like was, that was prior. <laughs> but he, anyways, he gets this call again from a sports writer, not even like the manager or the owner or whatever. I mean, like you're getting traded to Philly, and he's like, "I'm not going to Philadelphia for a multitude of reasons, many of which are logistical, many of which are they're incredibly racist in Philadelphia, as they yeah. are everywhere, but like especially well, Philadelphia." Philly was known to black players as like a dangerous place to play. Like you had like black players in the outfield had to wear helmets because yeah. people would throw stuff. Phillies fans would throw stuff at their own players. Jesus so he, Christ! Yeah, he, they would throw like batteries. And were there batteries back then in the seventies? <laughs> Did we have those? Batteries and batteries and cans of cola or something. I don't know. Soda. <laughs> did they have batteries in I don't know. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I believe they did, in fact, have batteries in All the right. 70s. They were throwing batteries at them. Yeah, my, it, they would have. This is your Taft moment. No. <laughs> you thought we had a president. We would have to fold the country. The whole thing would have to go down. We would have had to say, wrap it up, folks. Country's over. <laughs> If we had a president die from getting stuck in the bathtub. I mean, also, like, how would he, he would have to die by, like, starvation or. Well, the, yeah, and then he would get so thin he'd just slide right out. <laughs> That's so true. That. It's impossible to get stuck in a bathtub for that long. <laughs> yeah, because you'll always just. I'm like, oh, 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 begging you now. if you're just, like, an audio-only listener, I need you to check out the video of how intense Nick was telling Danica, like, he's the president of the United States. <laughs> he did not die in the bathtub. That would have, it would just be the craziest story of all time. <laughs> so, yeah, anyways, Philadelphia, the south of the north, basically. <laughs> well, I'm glad he's alive and well. Yeah, thank God. Taft? God, God bless Taft. I'm sorry. Wherever he is now. <laughs> all this is to say... He writes, Kurt Flood writes a letter to the baseball commissioner at the time, Bowie Kuhn. Dear Mr. Kuhn, this is how the letter goes. After 12 years in the major leagues, I do not feel that I'm a piece of property to be bought and sold irrespective of my wishes. I believe that any system which produces that results 
that result violates my basic rights as a citizen and is inconsistent with the laws of the United States and of several states. It's my desire to play baseball in 1970, and I'm capable of playing. I've received a contract offer from the Philadelphia Club, but I believe I have the right to consider offers from other clubs before making any decisions. I therefore request that you make known to all major league clubs my feelings in this matter and advise them of my availability for the 1970 season. Sincerely yours, Kurt Flood. Yeah. Good letter. It's very nice. This letter's going to ruin this man's fucking life. I'll yeah. tell you what. <laughs> the request is ignored, obviously, and Kurt Flood starts hearing from two very important sources in his life. One is the lady that I mentioned earlier, the white woman who's <laughs> like 30 years a senior. She's like, why don't you sue the MLB? Like, th- this is not how other businesses work. Yeah. It's crazy that this is how this business works. This is your job. You should be able to consider options. The other is his lawyer, who is not Marvin Miller. It's like a separate guy named like Zerman or something that basically says the same thing to him. What mostly inspires him, though, like you were talking about, he played a lot of his career during the civil rights movement in the 60s, and he mentions all the time how inspired he was and how his consciousness had like, clearly changed over the time that he was playing baseball. And so, uh, yeah, uh, I don't think I need to super harp on the fact that the civil rights movement was important. Kurt Flood approaches the MLB Players Association leader, leader Marvin Miller. Woo! That's my yeah. boy. That's your boy? God bless him. What do you know about Marvin Miller? Uh... What do you? No, where do you want me to start? Anywhere, anywhere you want to go. Uh, he was like the first union president, the first official union president. I think it was in, or he might have been the second, but it was in '66. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came over from the United Steelworkers Union, mm-hmm. uh, and he was like essentially the biggest organizer in the country at the time. He came over and helped organize the league, and since he became the leader of the union, salaries like tripled, like yep. almost overnight. Uh, the I think when he, I think it was in '76 when the Flood Act happened. Uh, the highest paid player was like $150,000 and Mike Schmidt on the Phillies, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, the next guy up was like half a million. Like the next year, the first free agent. My God. Yeah. So he got player salaries like way up immediately. Many people uh, meeting him for the first time underestimated Marvin Julian Miller. That's his full name. <laughs> this is from Steiner's book quote: "At five foot eight and one hundred and fifty pounds, which is like <laughs> I'm like five seven and like one thirty five, so he's not that much bigger than me." No. Uh, he, he had a right shoulder in, damaged at birth, and he looked slight and vulnerable. He spoke in slow, measured sentences and never raised his voice, but beneath the polite and charming demeanor lay a no-holds-barred fighter and relentless negotiator. He believed he could accomplish anything, despite his bum shoulder. This is again... <laughs> you don't need to harp on it, man. <laughs> this guy had a fucked-up, disgusting <laughs> shoulder. Horrible. But man, could he talk. Birth defect, that guy. <laughs> Gross. He, he willed himself into becoming a fine tennis and handball player. His wife, Terry, often teased him by calling him J.C. or Don Quixote. He liked the impossible dream, she said. He's eager for the impossible fight. His wife's weird. Teasing him by calling him Don Quixote? I'm saying... That's so. I wanted to like undercut every single thing you said with that like dumbass paragraph because he is all those things that you said. Yeah. And that's how Snyder chose to introduce him. What the fuck? Mentioning his bum shoulder twice and saying his wife used to tease him. And he's small and diminutive, but boy, could he hold a room? I don't know. Boy, was he aware of union contracts. Yeah. I'm excited to read that book. Everything you've read from it is so bizarre. <laughs> it's so weird. When he's talking about the um, white woman friend, he's like, they didn't have a weird sexual thing or anything. <laughs> like That's how it's said in the book. <laughs> This book is and fucking awesome. What would be so weird about it, <laughs> Mr. Snyder? I'm saying. What would be so weird about it? It's natural. Whoa. It's natural. 
Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, sidebar to talk about how sex is natural and beautiful, <laughs> Brad Snyder. Just saying, I think Snyder needs to take a step back. I've never had an episode where I clowned on the book this hard. <laughs> this book is kind of clown worthy in addition to being like a good account <laughs> of the shit that happened. Anyways, the so Kurt Flood approaches Marvin Miller, and the stakes for him are set almost immediately by by Miller. Uh, quote, it's a million to one shot, but even if that million to one shot comes home, you're still not going to get any damages. No trial court in America was going to award damages retroactively to a ball player making 90K a year um, under a player contract in trades that have been deemed legal by the Supreme Court for 50 years. A win at the Supreme Court would still mean a loss for Flood. He explained that a lawsuit would take at least two or three years, and by that time the court made a decision, Flood would be 34. He would lose three seasons and nearly $300,000 in salary. His playing career would be over. This would end any aspirations he had to be the first black major league manager. Flood would be blacklisted. But would it benefit all the other players and players to come, wouldn't it? Flood asked. Miller said that it would. That's good enough for me, Flood replied. Yeah, a distinction with Kurt Flood uh, was that he was like, fully willing to accept that it was his responsibility to like be the first guy Mm -hmm. in the water i guess yeah Yeah. he was like he saw it as an opportunity rather than like something that was happening to him Mm -hmm. that's like a difference between kurt flood and a lot of other trailblazers yeah he's like he he like it wasn't forced on him he 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 elected to do it yeah and it's also important that he's one of the highest paid players in the league because mm-hmm. if it was someone who was like one of the lower guys, it'd be like, oh, well, he's doing this because he's jealous. He's doing this because like he is scrapping for more, whatever. So it's important that a guy with like that much power and wealth, as a Kurt Flood, um, yeah, is the guy just like taking the L on this. Yeah. Yeah, he's inspiring. He is inspiring. And I know that based on the history of the podcast and given the long and flowery background of the guy really setting up for this court case, you might expect it to go well, listeners of the pod. Um, But that's where you'd be wrong. It's actually a fucking disaster. (laughs) 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 It could not go worse. Not only had the owners successfully turned every single player off from the idea of free agency, the propaganda was so thick that some players even testified against Kurt Flood in court, believing that if the reservation clause system was gone, that would threaten the future of baseball itself. Flood and his wife divorced during this time. He falls behind on child support for his five kids. His drinking problem, though in its nascent stages during this playing career, goes off the deep end. He's unrecognizable, basically, after these proceedings. And here's the thing, he does not win. Not, like, not even close. The thing that he's actively fighting for, to abolish the reservation clause, has to be done by challenging baseball's antitrust exemptions. And the Supreme Court is not big on going against its own decisions, I guess, unless you live in 2022 and <laughs> you have theocratic animals on the Supreme Court. Um... But Flood does not get the thing he so desires. Notably, though, on the second day of Flood's trial, you know who came to testify against the reserve clause? Jackie Robinson himself. Nice. Which is pretty cool. So it's not like the trial was, comp- like, you know, all for nothing. Like, there's important moments like that. Um, I just don't have time to tell the full story in mm-hmm. the way that it should be told. The way that's told in the book. So you can get the book and you can get the full story. Uh, so it's because of Kurt Flood's activism that a few years later the reservation clause is actually successfully challenged. It's just not in a court of law. Like, he's the guy who opened the door for everyone else to be like, wait, this is kind of fucked up, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so uh, three years after Flood versus Kuhn, players Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally once again challenged the reserve clause. But this time, instead of in a trial in a court of law, an independent arbiter heard the case. Can you explain this to me? Because I don't understand why this works. Uh I don't know exactly <laughs> okay. why this like worked out. <laughs> In December 1975, the players won the right to free agency. So I think I have some some inside inside baseball on this one. Pete seats. The the 75. So uh, this is where I 
didn't prepare any. I don't have papers with me. That's but I, I totally do have okay. some some I'm... fun facts, and I'd like to dive into uh, a, a character real quick. I'm not going to do a character myself. <laughs> you I, can. I don't want to do a character. Uh, the story's very good. <laughs> he, he's looking at Christine like Christine's going to be like, don't do a fucking character on the podcast. <laughs> I, thought I, I thought I saw her hand go up, and I was like, what's going on? <laughs> The character's not allowed. This is not TBS. Um, <laughs> USA. Network. <laughs> Guys, come on. <laughs> <All right. laughs> come on. All right. Uh, so, <laughs> briefly, I'm going to tell the story of uh, a man named Charles Finley. Let's do it. Uh, so, he was the owner of the Kansas City A's after they left Philadelphia. Um, I believe he bought the team when they got to Kansas City. He was like an insurance salesman in the area, super rich. Got uh, majority ownership sometime in the like late fifties of this Kansas City team. Yes, um, who are now the Oakland A's. They okay, eventually they moved to Oakland, uh, like three years later. Um, one thing about Charles Finley is that he was uh, a very good insurance salesman, but he could not sell baseball well um, <laughs> okay. at all. Uh, so the reason I bring him up is uh, in 74, he had a contract dispute with a pitcher named Catfish Hunter. Sweet uh, name. Incredible name. That's like a Byron Pringle level name. Byron Pringle. <laughs> the, the Oakland A's have some of the best names in the history of baseball. Cat, <laughs> Catfish Hunter and Raleigh Fingers on the same, oh! both pitchers, both on the same team at the same time. A nice name of Fingers and you're a pitcher? Isn't yeah. his number retired? Both of them are. Yeah. Whoa! Incredible. Catfish Hunter was one of the best pitchers in the league at the time. Uh, and Raleigh Fingers will be coming back shortly. Another Chekhov's gun. Perhaps, but a, a small one. A small. It's a Chekhov's small, Glock. Yeah, yeah, Chekhov's Glock. Um, so uh, he lost a Charles Finley lost a contract dispute with Catfish Hunter, where Catfish Hunter said, uh, "Like you missed paying me fifty thousand dollars, I'm going to sue you, and I want to become a free agent." He won that case, and he was granted his free agency. Hmm. Um, and then I. Th- think basically what happened was free agency was like gonna happen they were gonna mm. make all the players were like free to go so uh charles finley decided that all of these players are gonna be too expensive so he was gonna start just trading everybody <laughs> so he took every single good player he took what? catfish hunter had left he took uh reggie jackson and uh i think there was one player that stated it was vita blue all their good players. They just won three World Series in a row. Holy also. shit! <laughs> also, this is a, a three-peat for the A's. Um, he took all their players and he traded them for pennies to other teams. <laughs> <laughs> he traded Holy every fuck. single one of them. All the good players. And the A's still do that to And we st- we do it to this day, in his memory, honestly. <laughs> um, but uh, Vita Blue stayed on the team. And the only reason he didn't get traded as well is because the commissioner invoked a clause that's somewhere in the contract where he said that I know what's best for baseball and what you're doing is not good for baseball. <laughs> he said, stop trading everybody. <laughs> that, that's literally against the rules because I said so. Oh my God. So he couldn't trade Vita Blue. <laughs> so Vita Blue stuck? Vita Blue stuck on the A's. On a one-man team or like, like all my friends well, are gone? Yeah, it's just a bunch of like, not okay. great players. Yeah, okay. Not World Series team. Yeah. And then Charles Finley sued the league. Oh. He said, I should be able to trade everyone. <laughs> I should be able to nuke the team if I want to. And it went to court, and the court said, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> you signed that contract with the commissioner. The commissioner is allowed to tell you what's good for baseball. Oh, my God. Apparently, it's like a big case in sports jurisprudence. I read that word on Wikipedia earlier. <laughs> so, um, but 
Uh, last thing about Charles Finley. I said he wasn't good at selling baseball. Good at selling insurance. Um, so just a few of the things that this is a insane part about baseball history is before it was like on every TV, you would have to like really sell the team to get them to get people to come and mm. make money. So he would try like gimmicks. So the mascot for the A's was uh, an elephant. And he changed the mascot. He actually changed it in Kansas City. He changed it to a mule. <laughs> like a, a, they b- brought a mule in. Uh-huh. Like mas- an actual mule. Yes. And <laughs> the mascot's name was Charlie O, named after himself. <laughs> it was a mule, an ass, if you will. Can I swear? He, uh, this. Why does everyone fucking ask me that on this podcast? I swear the whole time. <laughs> an ass, if you will. Yes. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, he, the reason why he chose a mule was because he wanted to uh, appeal to the Democratic vote. No. This is not This is not a joke. No. <laughs> and the mule is the animal of the Democratic Party. I heard. So he had a Republican elephant, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so he brought in a Democratic mule to get everyone across the aisle <laughs> to come to the games. That's true. And then the mule died and they kept Stomper, God willing. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God the, the stomper's still around. Thank God that mule died. <laughs> yeah, I'm not rooting against the mule. He was 20. Mules, I don't know how long they Whoa, lived. But that's why a, do you, that's why a do you bring life. a 20 No, no, no. The, the mule died when it was 20. Oh, okay. No, he brought the mule in when it was younger, I guess. Okay. Horses tend to live around 30, and mules are like, you know, aberrations of God's creation. So yeah. I can yeah. imagine they lived to 20. Yeah. That's probably um, another thing that he did, this is a really funny one. The, the A's do... Uh, like giveaways with stuff. They gave away a backpack a few years ago with this character on it. It was a bunny named Harvey who would be uh, below the ground behind the umpire. And when the umpire needed uh, more baseballs, the bunny would rise up from the ground and hand him baseball. This is real. This is He did. He tried this. <laughs> I don't Didn't believe work. you. <laughs> it, this is 100% real. Oh, man, I should have I done five... Uh, ones with like four real ones and one fake one. Oh, I fuck. Guess. But these are all real. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he also suggested that the entirety of the major leagues change the baseball's color to orange. <laughs> Not sure why. <laughs> you keep dragging the ball more. I don't even know. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Charles so Finley like, sounds like a genius. He's he's like a maniac. <laughs> a he's misunderstood. Like, he's like a crazy person. Savant. And then, uh, oh, he also offered all of his players $300 in cash if they grow out mustaches. <laughs> Which is why Rolly Fingers grew out his mustache, oh. which became literally his like defining feature is this huge mustache like that. It's fantastic. It's like all of the promotional material with him is like a silhouette with that mustache. It's iconic at this point. And it was because <laughs> Charles Finley thought that mustaches would bring people to the games. They must have been in fashion. I mean, I would hope so. <laughs> I don't know why he's making <laughs> Or super not in fashion. So last thing about Charles Finley. Yeah. <laughs> is all of this, all these harebrained schemes to bring people in. <laughs> Uh, before the season, I think in like 72, uh, the team didn't have a radio deal. So their games weren't being broadcast anywhere. Every other team in the league had a radio deal. Charles Finley didn't want to pay for the radio deal. So the only radio station that was in his budget was a college radio station, like at a local college. So the A's were broadcast from a local college's radio station for like a whole season. And he went into a couple seasons without that broadcast deal. Uh, so he knew how to sell insurance, but he did not know how to sell a baseball team. You know how to sell this guy to me, though. He is, I mean, he's like an, he's like a quintessential American. 
just a the, guy a guy who has no idea what the fuck he's doing. The White Sox had an owner like that where yeah. like just one example, he put um a wall on the outfield fence that when the other team was batting, it would rise. What? Which is just cheating. Yeah, it's cheating. <laughs> Which is just cheating. Okay, I have one more thing about Charleston. <laughs> yeah. So Yankee Stadium has this uh their right field is way closer to home plate yeah. than every other stadium. Um, so Charles Finley was like, I want that. <laughs> um, and at the time, there was a thing in the uh, the agreement uh, with owners that you couldn't modify stadiums like that. You mm-hmm. couldn't. It was like the Yankees got grandfathered in. So um, he said that uh, he told his announcers to mention every time that a ball would have been out in Yankee Stadium. <laughs> So every time the commentators would go, oh, that would have been a home run to Yankee. Uh, but it was like a fly out because their yeah. outfield was deeper. And also he tried to circumvent this rule, but he he read it and he was like, the foul poles have to be far. So he brought it in all the, this is very difficult to describe, but it's like this. And then he brought it in like this and the foul pole goes like this. And there's like inches of space okay. alongside the side. So he like pushed the foul pole all the way back. So there is fair play right there, but he brought the wall way in. <laughs> he's just a maniac. Like he's Sweet. he's like a mad scientist. And he's baseball. still. Uh, this is like now he is or no this no no. Is like he sold the team in like seventy six. Okay okay. Yeah, he sold the team very shortly after he traded everyone away, and then got told that he couldn't do that. That's fucking crazy. His tenure on the A's sounds like unbelievably rich and yeah. deep. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of stories for a guy that was in the seventies. Yeah, it was a that you just knew on the top of your head. He owned the team from like fifty four to like eighty. Oh, okay. So he, that's, he owned, that's he owned the team for a minute, but yeah, he's like a he's a maniac. My God, that's fucking awesome. Yeah, that was that's what I prepared. That's what I brought. <laughs> <laughs> that's I think is sincerely the longest I've ever let anyone talk on this podcast. Oh, because I never I never shut the fuck up on this thing. All right, well, that was enchanting. I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> <laughs> you did a great job. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, you're so welcome, Danica. You have a great roommate, and Danica, thank you. Thank you. What'd you bring? <laughs> um, <laughs> you brought a great time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Danica came to slay. Danica's also chugging a Red Bull as this is going. Yeah. <laughs> I feel so alive right now. Your hair the dogging it, right? Um, I was. No longer? No longer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so after the All-Star break in 1976, the players and owners signed a new basic agreement that provided any player with six years of Major League experience, or it said that any player with six years of Major League experience could become a free agent. Circling back to Flood, though... He tries to make a return to baseball after this whole nonsense, but he's notably closed off from his teammates and treated like garbage by the club owners. He keeps like this picture of himself in his locker showing his contemplative, sensitive nature. And like, it's very, um, I don't know, it's very theatrical how, um, I'm going to find the picture for you. I want to show you the picture uh, to (laughs) show you what's in his locker. God damn it. There we go. This is him. And this is like the picture he hangs in his locker of like, man, I'm really deep and sensitive and I'm going through a tough time right now. Anyways, his um, pers- his drinking problem escalates uh, and he chooses to hide it from his teammates by rooming alone. Not even halfway through his first season back, he leaves a telegram for them. And the telegram says, I tried. A year and a half is too much. Very serious personal problems mounting every day. And then he runs away to Spain and opens a bar. <laughs> Hmm. I did know that. You did know I that? I did know that part. Yeah. <laughs> and so 
he does not make any sort of triumphant returns to the diamond, as it were. He still, like, you know, has baseball-related shit in his career. Like, um, not managing. Doing, uh, I don't know. He does his Kurt Flood shit. The thing I wanted to talk about was the <laughs> ending to the Kurt Flood story. And the ending to the Kurt Flood story is something like this. Uh, at the fairy tale ending, oh, there's like a, a th- it doesn't matter. I half of what I say doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> at a 1995 All Star game, he fainted and blamed it on the heat. He consulted an ear, nose, and throat doctor of what he thought was a sinus infection. He quote sounded like Louis Armstrong. At that point, That's doctors beautiful. <laughs> then he sounded like Louis Armstrong. He had a beautiful voice. And he probably he and then he got it with Ella Fitzgerald, <laughs> and then it was happily ever after. At that point, doctors discovered a lump in his throat, throat cancer. They initially gave him a 90 to 95% chance of recovery. The Players Association quietly helped Flood with his medical bills. Having been dropped from the Players' health plan years earlier, Flood did not have adequate insurance to pay for his cancer treatments. The union dipped into its own coffers to pay about $400,000 of his health care costs, which is a baffling amount. In 98, too? Yep. The chemotherapy, radiation treatment, and multiple throat operations eventually robbed Flood of his ability to speak. So this is a guy who, like, you know, went to court to speak out for players' rights, and he's robbed of his ability to speak, which is drawn poetically in the book. Anyways, Kurt Flood passed away on January 20th, 1997, Martin Luther King Day. Two years earlier, he'd turned 59. Um, And not a single active player in the MLB attended Kurt Flood's funeral. A bunch of like previous players had, but not a single active player had attended the funeral. And to this day, he is not in the Hall of Fame, uh, despite many, many pushes to do so. Uh, but they do not recognize this guy for the trailblazer that he is. It's because the Hall of Fame is made of of, of, uh, of, of <laughs> people who want to hide the hide. labor stuff. <laughs> <laughs> they have obvious. It's obvious why he's not is, in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Is that why Marvin Miller didn't want to be in the Hall of Fame? Yeah. I, I don't know if it's because that flood wasn't, or that he didn't he didn't like the sanctity of like the sport or mm-hmm. something. But yeah, Marvin Miller didn't want to be in the Hall of Fame. Look at him go! And they he got him, inducted they him last in. year. They did after after he died. Holy shit, that's awful! Yeah. yeah. Why is that even worse? It's pretty know. bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god! I yeah. didn't know that. Pretty gross. Jesus Christ! And never in the history of ever is like getting inducted in the Hall of Fame like a huge fuck you move. Yeah. God, mm-hmm. that's brutal. After, uh, so the era of free agency that uh, comes right after Kurt Flood um, is notable in that players' salaries almost immediately skyrocket. Like, it puts power back into the players to negotiate their own salaries. Um, and I was reading a chapter in Pay Dirt, which is the book I was talking about earlier, called Why Do Professional Athletes Make So Much Money? And it has like a fuck ton of figures detailing player salaries before and after free agency, data that is sensibly difficult to collect because it isn't public, as it relates to, oh, uh, the data is also related to ticket sales. A lot of the reason why people are like, players make too much money is because they're like, if they make more money, then I'll have to pay more for a ticket to the game, which is just not... That's, 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 not, how, that's not how that works. It's <laughs> never how it's ever worked. I've read a lot of blog posts in researching this podcast, which is maybe the only the reason why I'm like, oh, there's this idea that I don't know, people have to pay more if the players are paid more money, but that is just literally not true. <laughs> it is talked about at length in the book, which I don't think I need to sit here and talk about economics, but it's just it's it has to do with demand, not the other way around. Anyways, um, that is that on the Kurt Flood stuff, free agency, blah 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 blah. Anything to add, my friends? Because I have more after this. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think I'm good. Fantastic. I did, I did my. You you had a huge. Char- I did my Charlie O soapbox. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on from that, there is a part in Pager in the why do professional athletes make so much money? That's like, yeah, players like you know. I don't know, they list some notable players. And Bobby Bonilla just signed this huge contract, da 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 And I was reading it, and I was like, oh, yeah, this book was written in, like, the 90s. Yeah. And so they don't know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so oh, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> I want to talk about Bobby Bonilla right now. Let's do it. All right, so listeners, I want you to think of the date July 1st. I want you to think, what does that date mean to you? And prepare to have that date changed forever. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk about a baseball player named Bobby Bonilla. He was born February 23, 1963. He's a Pisces. Mm. Slay. He grew up in the Bronx and he went to Lehman High School. He had a deep love for baseball and he really liked watching Reggie Jackson as a teenager. Notably, Bobby Bonilla has a smile that could light up a room. Put simply, he's hot. <laughs> That's what I Is that editorializing? Is that you? That's me. Okay. <laughs> he made his MLB debut with the White Sox in 86, and he was fine. The go Pirates. Sox. Go Sox. Uh, I have a Sox hat on, in addition to my Biscuits jersey, for everyone to know. <laughs> the Pirates saw his potential, and Bonilla hung onto his starting spot in 1987. It was then that he really broke onto the scene. He slugged 15 home runs, and he had a 300 batting average, which, for the girls at home, I, I don't, why is it? Point three is it out of every? It's out of uh, well, it's, it's out percentage, of, yeah. so it's like thirty percent. Okay, I, I didn't it's know out of a thousand. Fantastic. Or out of one. Out of it's out of one. Out of one point zero zero zero. Meaning a three hundred batting average, which would be out of a thousand. Meaning out of every ten times on the plate, he hits the ball three times, which is good. He, which he, is good. It's he, really good. Yeah, he hits the ball for a base hit three times. For we a could, base we hit. could do a whole baseball like breakdown if you want i'm ready no 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 it would be five hours <laughs> but yeah oh that's what i actually put in the script every 10 at bats he has hit he'd hit the ball three of those times and get on base yes a 300 batting average is really good in baseball which would give us um oh actually i don't know why that sentence literally ends <laughs> there's no end to the sentence but nia's 1988 season would be even better he had 24 home runs um and his 274 average was good enough to earn him his first of six all-star appearances. And this is what, uh, there's a Great Falls Tribune article about him in 1991 that says, quote, when he strides to the plate with the bases loaded, he's smiling. If he rips a line drive down the line and he goes to second base standing up, he's smiling. If he strikes out, he's smiling. It's not a forced smile. It's a smile of enjoying your job for better or worse. Quote, I'm making a lot of money. It's the best time to be a baseball player, he said. <laughs> I gotta look up this guy's smile. Everyone's talking about it. You should. It's he's bright and cherry. He's a, like a handsome man, I would say. Look, Googling Bobby Bonilla smiling. <laughs> You'll find like every single picture of him. He's a happy dude. I can't believe I didn't include a picture in here for you. That's so goofy of me. Anyways, between 1992 and 1995, his life would change uh, when he signed up to the New York Mets in 1992. The New York Mets refers to the New York Metrop- Metropolitan Baseball Club, which is such a mouthful that I felt like I had to include it in here. Um, Bonilla becomes the highest played player in the National League from 92 to 94 when he signs a five-year, $29 million contract with the New York Mets, um, period. That's it. (laughs) She's showing the camera, Bobby Bonilla. Can I see the picture that you selected? Yeah, there he is. Isn't he handsome? He has a beautiful smile. He does. I get why he did it so much. (laughs) Um, so, again, he signs this contract for the 1992 season, which is the equivalent of 50, $56 million today. 
unfortunately, during that season, he fucking chokes. He's terrible at third base. They move him to the outfield. He's pretty good at hitting, but not his previous levels. And he just he can't fucking get it together. Fans hate him. The press hates him. And he hates the press even more. It's this weird duality where he's this, like, smiley guy behind the scenes, but he's literally being recorded, like, talking to press people, being like, I'll fight you. <laughs> <laughs> 1997. Um, he's traded a few times and he lands on the Florida Marlins in 97. He does really good again and then they go to the World Series. He hits a really important home run in Game 7 or whatever and they win. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> That's how I've described baseball in my thing. I like baseball, to be clear. <laughs> Shortly after, in 1999, Benia was put back on the New York Mets. Let me pause right now to talk about Sam Katz and Fred Wilpin. They're the owners of the Mets, and they're also brothers-in-law, which I find strange that you own a baseball team with your brother-in-law. No, it's just something you do. I guess. <laughs> we'll have more things to say about them, but those are their names. Um, around this time, or I guess it's like before 1999, the Mets strike a deal with um, Brett Saberhagen, saying Saberhagen will receive $250,000 a year from, from the Mets for 25 years. The payments will begin in 2004, um, and continue on after that. It's like a deferred contract. So uh, the deferred contract is helpful for the owners so that they can like accrue the money in different ways, like making different investments or whatever, and like pay this guy's salary over time. So they don't have to like choke up the money right now for him. So they make a deferred contract deal with Brett Saberhagen like a few years before 1999. So back to 1999. But Bobby Bonilla goes back onto the Mets, again, after winning the World Series, and then chokes again. <laughs> I'm sure baseball nerds would like to know exactly how disappointing he was, but it, like, I just didn't write it down. Um, but during the final game, I guess they like lost in the playoffs, and Bonilla was repeatedly spotting, played, he was repeatedly spotted playing cards in the dugout while they were losing the <laughs> like, playoff game. Um, he's an icon, king behavior. For the 2000 season, Bonilla was on the hook for a $5.9 million contract. And because of this deal they made with Brett Saberhagen, they just, the owners of the Mets decided to do the same thing with Bobby Bonilla. Their plan was to start paying Bobby Bonilla from 2011 to 2035 at a whopping 8% interest rate, meaning that like, he'd make a total of $26 million for not playing on the Mets for the 2000 season. Like They wanted to let him go and defer his contract and pay him over time. So, again... We're taking $5.9 million and turning it into $26 million. Why would they do such a thing? Like, where are they going to get that sort of money? <laughs> um, and under why would they do such a thing like that? It's because they were some of the most prolific customers of Bernie Madoff. <laughs> <laughs> There's the Chekhov's gun going out. And so what they did was literally take his money and invest it with Bernie Madoff. They invested that like $5.9 million, invested with Bernie with a promised 10% return on investment. So they'd make 2% on the deal. If Bobby's getting eight, they get two. <laughs> and they would, so Bernie Madoff goes down to 2008, which is a few years before Bobby Padilla's contract yeah. was supposed to be fulfilled. And so now every year from 2011 to 2035, on July 1st, Bobby Bonilla is paid like a little over a million dollars in accordance with the contract <laughs> for not playing baseball. He hasn't stepped on a diamond since 2003. Mm -hmm. It's arguably more inspiring than Kurt Flood. Literally. <laughs> I want to put Bobby Bonilla in the Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. Oh, he should be there. This guy, like, I want to celebrate Bobby Bonilla Day every year by just like grilling and doing nothing because he doesn't yeah. do sports commentating. No. He, doesn't, he doesn't, like, doesn't do shit. It's awesome. Yeah, he just it's, collects his Check. Fucking awesome. It's the best. So you did know that? You were sort of like acting like you didn't know at brunch? Like that's part of the Bobby Benilla story? No, I actually didn't know about the Bernie Madoff. You connection. didn't? No, I didn't. 
fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, anyways, that's Bobby Vinia. That's what I also wanted to say on this podcast. Um, how hilarious that mm. this is a thing that happened. Um, also, Katz and Wilpin, the two owners of the Mets, had a previous relationship with other Ponzi schemers. Like they were also embroiled in a huge hedge fund Ponzi scheme. Yeah, they were always getting caught up in something. They're, they're like, they're like, they're not like Charlie Finley. Like they're funny, but they're mm-hmm. they're like, I don't know. They're just failures. It's awesome. It is fucking awesome. This sounds like the Lockheed Brothers. Literally. <laughs> Um, when the Bayou Group went down, that's the hedge fund that they were also embroiled in. Sam Israel the third, I guess, is like the guy who went down with the Bayou Group. Um, and I wanted to read you about Sam Israel getting caught. <laughs> "Quote on Monday." Oh, so I'm sorry. He tried to fake his own suicide in the following way. <laughs> that always goes well. <laughs> Quote, on Monday, a car registered to Mr. Israel was found abandoned on a bridge that spans one of the deepest stretches of the Hudson River in New York. It was the same day that Mr. Israel, who pled guilty in 2005 to conspiracy and fraud related to Bayou's collapse, was supposed to begin serving his 20-year prison sentence. Written in the dust on the car's hood, <laughs> he wrote the ominous message, suicide he, is painless. <laughs> he's very corny for that. <laughs> He's very, very corny for that. Isn't that fucking awesome? All right, drama queen, dude, chill. Literally drama queen. It is crazy to do that when you're not going to kill yourself. When you're not. He had no plans of doing that. And then he got caught and, like, turned himself in at at some point. I think he, like, went into the woods. (laughs) And did what? He probably probably got too cold, like, a day in. He was like, I gotta go. I gotta go to jail. (laughs) Like a kid running away. (laughs) Like, was he just... What was his long-term plan? I don't think he had one. I think he saw a 20-year prison sentence coming his way, and he was like, like maybe I'm th- go camping for two days. It was a Hail Mary, if yeah. there ever was one. Yeah, I think fake suicides are never, like, a long-term thing. <laughs> it's, always, it's always short-term. Because you're thing. alive, so. Yeah. Yeah. So eventually you do get caught. All right, so that's all I wanted to say about Bobby Benia. That's what that's the checkoff's gun going off. You guys want to talk about the minor leagues? Yeah. All right. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. One crucial piece of the antitrust exemptions enjoyed by the MLB is control over the minor leagues, correct? Mm -hmm. With what little cognitive processing power I have left, it seems that the MLB counts the minor leagues as just like training for employees, Yeah. basically. It's 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 called like a farm system. Yeah. Now, please explain that to me. So it's kind of where they grow their players (laughs) and farm them. (laughs) And there's like a bunch of different... Um, like levels to to the minor leagues. People kind of only talk about like three of them, mm-hmm. but there's like so there's AAA, which is the highest level. Okay, that's where people typically get called up from, mm-hmm. and then there's AA, which is oh uh, where a lot of like prospects kind of start, or like not start, but like some of them go straight to AA, um, or like really good international players. But then there's like high A. <laughs> and then there's like, is it low A? There's yeah. And then there's single A. High what does a, the A stand a? for? Do you know? I actually have no idea. I have no idea. That's Whoa. a great question. I'm gonna Google it while you're talking. And then there's <laughs> then there's the rookie advanced league, and then there's the rookie league, which is just like the tickets are free. <laughs> <laughs> and who play? Like, how old are the players in the rookie league? They're like high schoolers. Yeah. What? Yeah. They can be they can be as young as like I mean, I think 18. But yeah. Like That's fr- crazy. fresh out of high school or uh, from like another country, international players go there. Mm-hmm. And then there's all, there's also international complexes where it's like they have these huge complexes of international players mm-hmm. that are affiliated with each team. But 
they're also not uh, required to like do like American labor uh, law there. So <laughs> uh-huh. they can kind of pay them what they want to pay them and release them when they want to release them and feed them what they want to feed them kind of stuff. Yeah, there was a recent set, at least in the minor leagues, there was a recent settlement that was like... It, are you talking about the unionization stuff? Maybe. Um, uh, the thing I was just going to mention was like, someone walked away from that and was like, yeah, now they get several meals a day. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, it was. I think that was part of the CBA talks about like some sort of better treatment for minor leaguers. But they are in the process of they're being they're very like the MLB agreed to voluntarily recognize the minor league baseball players union very recently okay yeah so again for those perhaps uninitiated these minor league players are playing what nine months out of the year Mm -hmm. and spend I don't know how they spend the other four months Uh, part-time jobs yeah like construction is like a big thing wow yeah Mm -hmm. And so during those nine months, they're, like, practicing, traveling, playing the damn game, doing the whole thing that they do in the major leagues, basically, but mm-hmm. um, for what is poverty-level wages. Um, Chris Dennis said, quote, I made 1K a month as a minor leaguer at the field nine hours a day, 30 days a month. That's less than $4 per hour, not counting travel time. Don't get me wrong. I was incredibly blessed to have the opportunity to play, but calling what we made a livable wage is laughable. Yeah. It's... And it's just the the lack of investment in minor leaguers just, like, even from a business standpoint, doesn't make any sense. Why are you paying your your future players such, like, like such shit that you want them working part-time, physically, like, demanding jobs. jobs where they can get, like, injured? It makes no sense to me. And, the, you f- and then they don't have money to, like, eat healthy? Yeah. <laughs> it's like you, what, you want the guys to develop into, like, productive major league players and you're not feeding them and you're not housing them like they don't get housing they don't no some teams some teams teams started yeah but it's pretty recently they started i think it's going to be part of their bargaining yeah but they don't get they don't get daily food they don't get housing uh i'm sure their health insurance is not what it should be for an 11 billion dollar industry that is how they're treating the people who are like right above or right i'm sorry right right below. below yeah the fucking major leagues. That is nuts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, I assume, to save money, but yeah. Jesus Christ on the cross. It's just like, it's just greed. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't even save them that much. Yeah. Like, I can't even to, imagine. To do the whole like refurb thing, it would be a couple million. Yeah. Like to, to pay everyone a livable wage and to house them all, wouldn't be that much. This, again, there was like some recent, I think it was like a $185 million settlement that was just like basically back pay for the minor leaguers who were like, hey, we worked all of this time and we didn't get any money for it. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I he, think they tried to not pay them during the COVID year. What? I think something like that happened where like. Yeah, no, they did try to not pay them. And then a bunch of major league players were like, Ed, you, you got it. <laughs> you got to pay those guys. And then they were like, OK, I guess we'll pay them. Oh my God! Yeah, that is fucking nut nut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I had nothing. I only wanted to hear what you guys had to say about the minor leagues because I sincerely did not understand that it's because it's they're like in training, yeah. which I guess means that you don't have to pay them the same way that you would pay someone who is not a, a trainee. Well, I mean, they. I I I don't. I think a lot of people don't share this opinion, but I think me and Nick do probably. Where like minor league teams are like really important um to like smaller communities who don't have um like a major professional sport like thing going on in their city so like 
uh, Montgomery, <laughs> Alabama, or like <laughs> Portland has a, is it Portland that has the hops? Uh, it's Hillsboro. Yeah. So It's a <clears throat> suburb of Portland. So it's like Portland doesn't have, it's like a major city, doesn't have a baseball team. So mm. it's like, it, they do become sort of like really important like community spaces for people who like baseball but don't have like a team. Um, so it's like, they are in training, but it's also like professional sports still. Yeah. Like they do all of the things that you're meant to do in the major leagues and they mm-hmm. provide the same sort of, I don't know, thing yeah. that major leaguers do. My mm-hmm. goodness. You know? Yeah, it's, it's not good. Well, that is a dilly of a pickle. <laughs> That's, I guess, all I had to say about but that. But th- they're Things unionized are, now. So, yeah. Or yeah. They're, they're going to be. They're going it's to be it's, it's going to be important to look, kind of like pay attention to how the MLB, they're because they're owners, they're going to do some shady shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did agree to voluntary, voluntarily recognize the minor leaguers union. They're g- going to be part of the MLBPA, which is the Players Association, which is the name of the union. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think... They're probably going to see a lot of like teams getting shut down, like minor league low level teams mm. probably shutting down. Which they just did two years ago. Yeah. Or three years ago. They just shut down a bunch of teams. Pretty dark stuff. Yeah. Or they, they unaffiliated, which basically means you're not getting like MLB teams to fund you. Oof. Yeah. And this is, um, I want to circle the conversation to the owners. Do you two know a lot about the um, White Sox owner, or do you have an owner of a Jerry base- Reinsdorf? Yeah, I am upset with him. And why are you upset with him? Um, you know, I think it's a sentiment that a lot of White White Sox fans share. I don't. He he's the one that hired Tony Larusa. Okay. Which do you know who this is? No. He's an awesome guy. He has two DUIs. Oh. And that's the just two. He only has two. Don't worry. <laughs> So far. And they so hired far. him as the driver for the team. Yeah. He, <laughs> I mean, in a way. So he was, he's a hall, that's what he said to the cop who pulled him over. He said, listen, I'm a Hall of Fame baseball guy, which he was, because oh. he retired and then he was inducted in the Hall of Fame because he was a good manager in For, the 80s. Former manager of the Oakland A's. Oh, yeah. wow. When, won, won a couple uh, World Series. Look yes. at him go. Then he managed the White Sox in the 80s also. Yeah. Um, and then he retired, took years off, took a couple years off to drunk drive. Four and then. <laughs> <laughs> and then Jerry Reinsdorf, for some reason, was like, we got to get a little gimmick going. I'm going to hire a 95-year-old man. Oh, he's 95? No, he's oh. just old. And he's like 80. And um, so they hired him, and he sucks shit. And um, <laughs> then they let him go for health reasons, which you, I just think was a cover-up. <laughs> you're, also, you're also leaving out that he has like, been reportedly very racist. Yeah. Uh, and the White Sox are one of the most diverse teams in the league. And uh-huh. they hired him to be the manager. Yeah. Jesus Christ. He was like, if any of my players like sit during the anthem they're not playing like what yeah yeah he said that when he wasn't a manager <laughs> like like he wasn't you don't working have players <laughs> he wasn't <laughs> what are you talking about and jerry reinsdorf was like let me hire this guy he's like he's yeah. perfect let's give him players <laughs> um, oh my god he's perfect and it's like the white Sox have a pretty high payroll comparatively to a lot of teams i think we're like number six or seven or something like that like mm. we're not super low on mm. the pay like pay scale but I don't it's just like the dumbest we spend money on the dumbest stuff and not good things and so it's kind of frustrating and it has been in the in this this off season Mm. (laughs) specifically for me (laughs) so yeah he sucks he also owns the Bulls I did know that Mm -hmm. and um I have a question for you do you have the um ESPN plus or whatever to like watch baseball games we have MLB TV that's what I meant um 
Do they black out games? Yes. They black out. Oh, you want to get into this now? I do. I don't. <laughs> Christian, I'm going to get pissed off. <laughs> I want you to get pissed off. We don't have that much time, but I, that was just a question I had for you. What, like, what, what do you mean they, like, you can't see the we game? We can't watch them because they assume everyone's 45 and has cable, but I'm 23 <laughs> and I don't have cable. Okay. So they think we could watch our local games on the television, but what, but I can't because I don't have cable. <laughs> so I can't watch White Sox games, but luckily I have a boyfriend who, <laughs> who does have Hulu Live, and so that wow. I so I watch it. But bef- if I didn't have that boyfriend, I don't uh. know how I would watch my games. <laughs> the ties that bind us. Yeah, I got really excited because I was in LA for work, um, and uh, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I can watch because. I could watch it on my phone because I'm not in Chicago. Yeah. So I was in LA. I was like, I had some downtime. So I was like, let me watch the Sox game because I can now. I try and click on it. Said this game is blacked out in your area, and I was like, what? They're playing the Dodgers. They were playing the Dodgers. <laughs> I was so upset. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I had very little um, else to say about baseball, so I wanted to. That's why I was asking some some discussion questions. Dare mm-hmm. I say, what is your favorite thing about baseball, and what would you want to change about the MLB? Oh, what would I want to change? Yeah, oh, I think man. I want the. I think it would be cool to have the bases be a little bit bigger. I was, they're doing that. <laughs> I know. That was Wait, the really? Joke. Yeah. That was the joke. Yeah, they're making the bases. It was for player safety. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, I would say my favorite part about baseball. I mean, it's like, it feels corny to say, but it's nice to feel like you're a part of something bigger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even if it's just for a couple hours, uh, and even if your team loses, it's like fun to root for something that's pretty inconsequential. <laughs> like in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. And it's nice to have something like that where you can kind of just like check out. So that's my favorite part about baseball. Also the sounds. I think it's, it's a beautiful sounding sport. It really is. And I would probably make the baseballs orange. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good idea. Uh, no, but what would I change is I would, uh, if I, honestly, if I said what I wanted to change about baseball, I probably would be uh, under arrest. So okay, yeah, I'll leave it out. What has Great. to do with owners and commissioners? Yeah, maybe oh. maybe the reason why you were suspended from Twitter recently. Something, something about the commissioner, Mister Manfred. Yeah, and I, someone Mr. said something on Twitter, and someone got suspended for it. <laughs> but anyway. How long was your suspension, Danica? Um, well, it was kind of humiliating because <laughs> I didn't even notice I was suspended because it's like an account that I'm not usually logged into. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> and I opened the app and it made me go in and delete the tweet. They were like... It was shameful. It yeah, was it was like, do it. They were like, they were like <laughs> look at what you did. You can't say shit like this. You're like a dog. Like, like a dog, yeah, pissing <laughs> on the carpet. <laughs> look at this. Yeah. <laughs> Sniff it. Yeah. Yeah. No. They made me delete it, but... I wasn't suspended for that long. I think it was like 48 hours or something. Oh, that's yeah. not bad. Um, my favorite thing about baseball is probably what Nick said. Um, I grew up uh, a Giants fan. Uh, so we won three World Series once when I was 11 and then 13 and then 15. Sweet. Yeah. So it was like a, it was kind of a cool, It's. I was thinking about this recently. It's like you are a part of something very, very like exciting and cool even if your team's bad um which was not the case for me <laughs> um <laughs> now it is but anyway because uh, i'm a white Sox fan now but um 
I was thinking about Buster Posey, which who is the Giants catcher. He was a very solid, solid player. Sweet name too. He won all. Th- <laughs> He's like a Hall of Famer. He's more than solid. He's like incredible. Yeah. Don't, yeah. You don't have to. Don't be humble. I'm, for being, him. I'm being humble. <laughs> don't be humble for him. But um, please toot his horn. He had a very short career, kind okay. of. Um, but he played it all with the Giants, and um, he won all three World Series uh with the Giants with that Giants team, and I was sort of at the age where I was like kind of like becoming a person when he started baseball and then he retired um last year Mm. um so it's just like I got to grow up like watching this guy's whole career and like I was like a part of it that's so sweet it's nice to have like stories like that I think yeah um and if I could change one thing about baseball um (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of people that make baseball special. There's the players, there's the fans. Um but also like I was thinking about this like as a kid going in the same like gate that you walk into every time and it's like the same ticket person and you kind of like make connections with those people yeah. or like I go kind of go to the same beer guy <laughs> at the White Sox games. <laughs> and so yeah, unionize the minors, the minor leagues. And then also, like, um, I would like every, like, stadium worker to also be unionized also. Yeah. Because, you know, the baseball wouldn't happen without them. Period. Yeah. I, I, great answers. Great what's, answers. Uh, what's your favorite part about baseball and what would you change? Oh, <laughs> I, <laughs> um, my favorite part about baseball is the pants. They're great. Obviously, it's obviously the pants. It's the ass. It's the pants. It's the belts. It's the like the whole uniform. You can't not look good in a baseball uniform. It's the beautiful, wow. beautiful smiles. It's it's the beautiful smiles and beautiful asses that carry them. <laughs> you know, the high five was uh, invented. Glenn Burke, on a baseball field, who yeah. I think was gay. Mm-hmm. He was. Look at that. Is he is might he still alive? be? I think he's dead. I think he might be. Dead. But, but Dusty Baker's alive. Yes. Dusty Baker's alive. But he just, I, he just won a World Series. Mm-hmm. I actually did know all of that. Why did I know that? I don't know. It's a cool fact. Yeah. It was also like 1975. If I change anything about baseball, I would make them all gayer. <laughs> wow. Are there any gay players right now? Actually, I have no yes. idea. Oh. Not that we know of. Oh. <laughs> but almost certainly. The reason that I did this episode first, though, is that the um, Kurt Flood free agency stuff, while it originated in MLB, or like it was the first... Uh, sport to have free agency in the way that we know it, it sort of bleeds into all the other sports. And a lot of the things that we're talking about here, again, also find their way into other sports. Which is why this is the, like sort of a mothership episode. And I feel like this episode is a mothership episode for baseball in general, and it could set up in the future franchising options, uh, talking <laughs> about like a specific team and like the best business of a team, because that's something that I wanted to talk about in this episode, but I was like, that's just too many like getting yeah. too specific and I just want to do like an, a general overview of like why we're the here. The White Sox are a busted business. Absolutely. Busted baseball bureau. Yeah. Whoa. That's the <laughs> spinoff of this podcast. So that was sort of my takeaway and I think Kurt Flood's story is also really beautiful and worth telling and just so special. I was just very uh, captured reading this so I was like I have to make an episode about this. So that's why we sat here and did this whole thing. Um, you two have been fantastic guests. Uh, truly, just top, top, top tier. Couldn't have found anyone better. Thank you. You both slay. Thank you, Chris. I'm glad your audience got to like really see my range. Because the, <laughs> the first time I came on here, I was just talking about like war. 
Yeah, that's so true. So. And honestly, they get to see my rage too because I just came off the Monsanto season. This is the first episode back after the Monsanto season. Yeah. We're just sitting around talking about orange baseballs. And yeah. like... <laughs> well, this is pretty much all I know about. So, slay. Not much range, but. Hey, you crushed <laughs> Depth. it. Depth. Oh, wow. Depth over range. Depth over range. That's what we're taking away from this. All right, everybody. That's been the Busted Business Bureau, season four, episode one. If you like it, donate to Busted Business Bureau on Patreon, patreon.com slash Busted Biz Bureau. That's fucking it. I mean, I got nothing else to say. How, how about you two? Nope. Who's your favorite baseball player? Say, say goodbye to them. Uh, of all time, Matt Olson, I love you. Have a beautiful time in Atlanta. I'm glad you're home. Aww. Oh, that's sweet. That's like a hard thing for me to think of. Uh, on the spot, I have so many. That's okay. Um, probably, honestly, I'm just going to give a big shout out to, uh, manager Bruce Bochy. Welcome back to baseball. Uh, I'm glad you came out of your retirement. I'm excited to see you yell at umpires again. <laughs> nice. Mike Clevenger, you're the only baseball player I really know because you used to play for the Guardians and now you play for the Sox, I think. <sighs> yeah. Fuck, man. <laughs> All right. Uh, bye, everybody. <laughs>